following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Today's pre-sermon reading is from Philippians 2, 1 through 13. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equally with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for It is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Uh, So we have a special guest speaker today, and he needeth no introduction, but um, I'm going to anyways with a uh, fun little game of two truths and one lie. (laughs) So he is been an architect for 22 years, uh, which most leading historians attribute to uh, his first listening of Jay-Z's The Blueprint, which was a masterpiece created in 2001. The timeline lines up, trust me. Uh, He will adamantly uh, fight you on the fact that there is only one flavor of gummy bear, and that flavor is gummy. And he has been selflessly serving this church for over a decade. So I'd like to welcome my dear friend, Dan Gladding. Good morning, everyone. And uh, as you hear in my voice, I'm also carrying a little bit of cold. I will say ahead of time, I went to a lab and got tested. It's not COVID. So I'll stay back here. You stay over there. Everyone will be good. So, work of the people. Um, I I came to Scott a little while ago talking about something that was on my mind, and it sort of morphed into this, what Scott has described as sort of a discontinuous series where we're going to get us to step up here and talk about our faith and what we're doing, um, what's helping us in our faith, what's saving our faith. So, I'm coming at this a little bit different. Um, I didn't grow up in the church, unlike a lot of people in this community. Um, I came to faith as an adult, and as a result of that, I didn't build up a story as a child that got challenged as I grew and evolved and learned more. Um, I didn't have a structure of religion that has since sort of maybe broken down and deconstructed, so I'm not struggling with an idea of deconstruction or reconstruction like I know a lot of my friends are. Um, Honestly, because when I was younger, the things I was told by people of faith to invite me to their church 
never seemed to make sense. I'm a guy that lives in my brain, uh, as any of you who know me would agree, uh, for better and worse. But people would say things like, God loves everyone, but don't break God's rules or God will punish you forever. Jesus died to forgive everyone's sins for all time. If I don't believe that, I'll be punished forever. But if I do believe it, then I get to go to heaven. Unless I sin, then I get punished. But Jesus took care of that. But still, don't think about girls. (laughs) Or boys. Just stop thinking so much. All the good news that I was offered was basically a heavy load of cognitive dissonance. It didn't make sense to me. So I just didn't go there. Um, as a young adult, my relationship with my wife, who was then my girlfriend, was beginning to get serious, and it was clear to me that her faith was very important to her. We are in a different place. So it became important to me to learn about it, to find out about it, to understand what this amazing woman took such importance in, placed such importance in. So I started reading. I live in my head. Bought a Bible, started exploring. And I read about a man who showed everyone the power of living from love, living in love rather than living in fear. He showed example after example of the ways that love can change the world. That makes sense. I've been slowly building my faith ever since that period of my life, slowly, consistently. So today, instead of talking about what's saving my faith, I'm here to talk about what's fueling my faith. And what fuels my faith is when I hear people dig into the Bible, dig into these stories, and find something maybe not easy to see, something a little bit nuanced, something that I never realized was there. And if you dig and you wrestle and make connections, what's there is so beautiful. And it just clicks together in a way that just makes so much sense to me. So... As I mentioned, the idea for this has been something that's been bouncing around my head for a couple of years now. And I have to give a lot of credit to Don Shever. He was here several weeks back talking to us. And he has been, he has hosted a podcast several years ago, uh, which he called Evangel Bros, uh, his own pun on I'll let you take the humor with you. But it essentially was exploring the Bible and the stories it told in its historical, cultural, and social context and really trying to look at what people then were hearing and what stories they were telling and what that meant to those people at that time in their culture. Currently, he's on a podcast hosted by his wife, Tana Shiver, and a good friend of theirs, Sarah Minardi, a very smart woman, and they call it Ancient Jesus Future Faith. And it has a similar bend, trying to understand what this ancient rabbi had to tell and what this ancient book has to tell to us living now and in our future. And a lot of what they've talked about over this time, again, has just been this digging. If you were here when he spoke a few weeks ago, you understand how knowledgeable he is. He is a student of the Bible. He digs in and wrestles around and plays with the Bible, and he brings the stories to life. He shows us what's there to find. And between the various sermons I've heard him give and the podcasts I've listened to, he's taught me a lot about how complex and beautiful a document the Bible really is. So a lot of what I'm going to talk about comes from him. So a lot of us um, humans, we want the Bible to be simple. We want the lessons to be straightforward, the answers to be easy. 
understandably. It's a human nature. We don't want to be wrong if we can help it on something that's so important. The problem is the Bible isn't simple. It isn't easy. It's a rich, complex, beautiful piece of work. We've talked here at Arts and about before about how it's not a book, it's a library of books. And some are historical, and some are poetry, some are song, some are lineage. Um, some are history specifically, some are complete allegory. One book is a play, we believe. And that complexity asks a lot from us. It's a lot of hard work, but the work is so rewarding. And that human urge towards simplicity has led to so much harm. Attempts to simplify the Bible have led to that cognitive dissonance that I spoke about before. We hear about a man, the son of God, who came to show us how to live in love, how to protect the widow, how to protect the orphan, how to protect the marginalized, but not those people. We're told the kingdom of heaven is at hand and then told to focus on what happens after we die. What we're taught about salvation might as well be lessons in buying fire insurance. Say these words, you're protected from the bad place. Don't sin, because that'll violate the terms of the insurance. But if you do, repent, because Jesus will pay your deductible for you. But don't sin again. Is it really that simple? Is that the good news? It doesn't make any sense. So, digging briefly into these interconnected ideas of sin and salvation, because as a lay person, I like nice, simple topics. So, salvation. What are we taught about salvation? Fire insurance, right? As long as I've accepted Jesus as my personal savior, I'm saved. I'll go to heaven when I die. But that's not, nothing to do with you. That's my insurance. You pay your own premiums. I'm not paying your premiums for you. Philippians 2.12, which we talked about earlier today, reads, Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So, okay, this passage, therefore, what is the therefore, therefore? Not going there today. <laughs> Got too much on my plate. Please find out what the therefore is there for. Spoiler alert, Brian read it earlier. But this passage is often used, it's a fear-mongering passage. We should be constantly afraid whether or not we are saved. And if we aren't afraid, there's something wrong with us. We're missing it. But let's look closer at that word salvation. What do they mean by salvation? Again, this was written a couple thousand years ago. Culture was different. Context was different. Languages were different. The Greek word used there is soteria, which can also be translated as deliverance. Work out your deliverance in fear and trembling. And the first time that word soteria was used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, it's in Genesis 26, 31. This is the story of Isaac building the wells for some visitors. In the morning, they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. The word there, soteria, is peace. So when writers, before the time of Jesus, were translating the Old Testament into Greek, they chose the word soteria for peace, which was later used for deliverance or salvation in the New Testament. And of course, the Hebrew word for peace, shalom. So that phrase, work out your own peace in fear and trembling. Getting a little more complex. 
This is a little less about what happens after you die and a little more about the here and now. Let's dig into it a little more. Your, the word your, is that singular or plural? In English, we don't make a difference. It's the same word. We can tell by context clues. And our modern Western culture is an incredibly individualistic culture. We're taught about, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, as absurd as that sounds. We're taught to almost worship the, the genius, right? Ancient Hebrew culture was communal by nature. Their central story is a community's exodus from slavery into nationhood. So Jesus lived and taught in the middle of this communal culture, as did the writers of the Gospels in the New Testament. So when the Bible uses the word you or your, who are they talking to? Are they talking to you there in the third row, fourth seat from the middle? Or are they talking to you, the community of God? This letter this that Paul writes to the church in Philippi, it opens with a greeting to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Paul is clearly writing to a community, and yet we are taught that he is talking to each of us individually. Our culture bends the meaning of this. This is a communal directive from Paul. He's telling the, word, the church to work out their communal peace, their deliverance, their safety in fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. That's where that clobber comes in again. What's that about? Again, think of the context. The church in Philippi was the people there probably were in actual fear. They were probably had issues with their actual safety. This was the birth of a new movement, an offshoot of Judaism, which was already an oppressed religion in the Roman Empire. Paul was exhorting them to risk their own safety in the pursuit of safety for all. The passages before this talk explicitly about Jesus being equal to God, but giving up that safety and stepping down to the form of a slave to teach us how to find safety for others, putting himself at risk to the point of death to find safety for others. So Paul is again saying, you need to, as a church, work out your communal safety in fear and trembling. You need to put yourself out there. You need to give up some of your safety to find safety for those who need it more than you. Civil rights activists, both in the middle of last century and in the last few years, choose to give up their own safety to find more safety for people of color. Artisan church, we took steps to intentionally make this a safer place for people in the LGBTQIA community. And that had a cost for us. Now, I want to be clear. The cost for us is nothing compared to the risk that people in this community face every day for existing who they are. But us taking those steps is exactly what Paul is talking about. This is what the Gospels point to over and over. John the Baptist announces the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus spends his ministry teaching a lot through parables about what it's like to participate in the kingdom of heaven now. To give of your own freedom and safety, to ensure and work for and contribute to the safety, the deliverance, the salvation, the shalom of others. But we're taught to worry about what happens after we die. Except Jesus, don't sin. You get to go to the good place when you die. See what happens if an individualistic culture tries to make a very complex issue easy, simple? We lose so much. And sin, of course, is the stick to salvation's carrot. 
It's a big damn stick. We, yes, we're saved by Christ. Yes, we're saved by grace. But don't sin or you could ruin everything. We are taught that we are inherently sinful. I am sinful, therefore I sin. We're also taught that we're created in the image of the perfect God. But by sinning, we have messed up our perfection and therefore doomed for eternity. Cognitive dissonance. Ancient Judaism taught the reverse. I have sinned, therefore I am sinful. And once those sins have been forgiven, which involves repentance, which revolves making right the wrong that you did, you're no longer sinful. The sin is the act, not the person. Hate the sin, love the sinner. No, I mean, yes, but that's so abused. It's not about the person, it's about the act. How much more comforting is that? Just absolve the act. Let's get into the Hebrew word for sin, which is, this is going to go great with my cold. Chata. I don't even know how to pronounce that, but I think that's right. And that word literally means missing the mark. This is an archery term. You aimed at a target, you attempted to do the correct thing, and you missed. It doesn't talk about how badly you missed, you just missed. If you're playing darts, you might have hit just outside the bullseye. You might have hit just inside the bullseye. You might have hit the wall. But you're aiming at the bullseye, and you can always do better. Again, this is much less harmful imagery than the idea we're given of take one step off the one and only correct path, and you're ruined forever. This image leaves room for improvement, leaves room to try, to fail, to learn, to get up, try again, and keep getting closer to what you're aiming at. And let's be clear, this is not the same thing as wickedness. The Bible talks about wickedness, and the words used in the Bible give wickedness a sense of turning away from God, deliberately. Not even aiming at the target, knowing the target's there and choosing to turn away from it. Imagine you join a pickup game of basketball. You take a shot, you miss. Nobody shuns you or shames you, unless they're really close friends. <laughs> People miss. It's expected. You get the ball, you practice, you shoot again. That's sin. If you get in that game, you take the ball, you check out over the fence, and you walk away, that's wickedness. You're not even trying. You know what the rules are, what the guidance is, what's expected of you, and you purposely don't try. But even after choosing wickedness, you can choose to turn around, to repent, and try to aim at the target again. So we aren't taught about sin in terms that allow us to improve or grow. We're taught that it's a barrier between us and God, but this word, missing the mark, it's clearly showing that we are bent towards God as long as we're trying. Even in the midst of sin, if we miss, this is not a barrier between us and God. We're trying, and God is there with us to show us how to improve, how to get better. Jesus gave us tons of exercises on how to get better, but again, we've been told these lessons as some kind of impossible standard that we can never live up to. Last week, Scott talked about, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Talks about murder, talked about adultery. So great, if I'm mad at someone, I'm doomed for all eternity. If I'm really angry at someone, that's the same thing as having murdered them? No. This is Western individualistic culture trying to oversimplify things. In Jewish teaching, Torah is honestly a fairly easy target to hit. 
And the job of a rabbi is to make the target harder for us. Thou shalt not kill. That's a target the size of a barn. As long as you're aiming at it, you're probably not going to accidentally murder someone. Not even hating someone, no matter what they do, is a tiny dot somewhere on that barn. That is an incredibly hard target to hit. But aiming for it brings you walking closer to God and sure as heck means you're even less likely to murder someone, right? You're going to miss the target, but you get to keep trying and you get to keep bending closer to God. It's not about perfection. It's about desiring to walk with God and the path that they have set before us. It's not the same thing as wickedness, a sense of, wait a minute, well, Walking with God, choosing the path they led before us. Micah 6.8. We looked at this a few weeks ago. Call back. There's a bunch of rhetorical questions. What sort of offerings we need to provide? Thousands of rams or rivers of oil. We are told that God does not ask perfection of us. He has told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to do, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. By choosing to walk with God, even when we miss... We are still bent towards God, and we have the ability to make the world a better place. By choosing to aim towards God, we can focus on how much more can we do? We don't need to focus on how dare you. We can focus on how can I improve? How can I do better? These are complex ideas, and I've barely scratched the surface of them. But it makes so much sense to me. This, to me, is, it doesn't have that cognitive dissonance. It understands our imperfection as humans and a path towards bringing the kingdom of heaven here on earth as God wants it. So, embrace the complexity. Wrestle with the Bible. When something seems clear and simple, question it. God welcomes the wrestling. He welcomes our questioning. Jacob wrestled with God all through the night. God gave him a new name. He didn't shun him. He didn't turn him away. He welcomed it. So dig deeper. Look for connections, not just within passages, but across passages. If you are wondering what something's meaning and it confuses you, look to the example of Jesus. Scott talks about this over and over and over. The Bible isn't the goal in and of itself. It points us to Jesus. If it's not pointing us to Jesus, we need to look deeper. We need to think about it harder. Walk that path that Jesus set before us. Live in love not in fear. One way that Jesus invites us closer to him is the incredibly complex and nuanced sacrament of communion. Is this the actual manifestation of God's body and blood? Is it bread and wine as a symbol of a ceremony that happened then? It's an invitation to walk his path and be bent closer to God. It's not an invitation from me. It's not an invitation from artists and church. It is an invitation from God to think on everything he has done for us and this community that he is growing across the world. So we please welcome you um, to take part in communion. Uh, You don't need to be a member here or at any church. You just need to be following the invitation Jesus has for you. If this is not something you feel is right for you, you're totally welcome to sit in your seat, think, meditate, pray. No one will look sideways at you. ask that you come up the middle aisle, take some of the wine, dip it in the bread or juice. It's all gluten-free bread. We do have individual sealed packets if that's something that's right for you. Make your way down the side aisles, back to your, your seat. Thank you. 
For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.